You've seen our research on social media. Now, join us as we dive deeper into the public health topics of our time, featuring new studies and findings generated by our faculty and researchers committed to advancing health equity. From the Department of Population and Public Health Sciences at Keck School of Medicine of USC, this is Preventive Pros, the podcast. My name is Ricky Blusenthal. I'm a sociologist who's conducted a lot of different kinds of studies, but but probably most notably research on well-being and health and harm reduction related to people who inject drugs. Um, I'm currently a professor uh, in the Department of Population and Public Health Sciences. I'm also vice chair of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the department, and I am an associate dean at Keck Medical School, uh, and I'm associate dean for social justice. For over 30 years now, I've been doing research on um, the health of people who inject drugs, so people who mostly use heroin, fentanyl now, and methamphetamines and cocaine. Um, and I got involved in that work uh, during my graduate studies at UC Berkeley. Um, and my interest in it sort of grew out of my general interest in the impact of disadvantage on uh, low-income people and racial and ethnic minorities, which is sort of my main focus in my doctoral training. Uh, and I got, through a friend, an opportunity to run a study, uh, which was one of the first HIV epidemiological studies among people who inject drugs um, in um, Oakland and Richmond, California, and, uh, and then East Palo Alto. And so when I was doing that research, we discovered there were very high rates of HIV uh, in those three communities, much higher uh, than had been found elsewhere on the West Coast. Um, so it was about it was uh, a third in East Palo Alto, 30% in Richmond, and uh, 20% in West Oakland. And this was in 1991 and 1992. Um, so um, as part of learning that, um, I also quickly realized that the neither the federal government, which had forbade funding for syringe service programs, which would have been the most obvious uh, intervention to use to help folks, nor the local governments were likely to do anything about it. And so uh, from there, I got involved with a group of people um, and helped co-found um, the Oakland Needle Exchange Program called HEPPAC or Casa Segura, which still exists today. Um, and uh, so, you know, in sort of one false swoop, uh, I got a chance to both understand the consequences of disadvantage, both economic and racial, and also be part of creating a solution, uh, at least to deal with the health problems associated uh, with injection drug use. So what is, you know, the question is sort of what's changed since 92? And the truth is a lot has changed, uh, some of it good, and that I, which I will describe, and some of it not so good. So the good stuff um, is uh, that that syringe service program that I help run. I mean, it still exists. It's a great program, and it provides comprehensive services in the area of HIV recovery, hepatitis C, wound care, uh, access to housing, a whole variety of, of really important services uh, for people who use drugs in that environment. So that's awesome. And then, of course, those approaches, harm reduction, things like housing first, lower access or easier access to medications for opioid use disorder has all happened in those 30 years. 
So harm reduction is now federal policy. Um, so I got arrested for money needle exchange program in 1992, and now it's federal policy. So, you know, we've had big changes um, in the acceptance of these approaches uh, for people who inject drugs. So that's awesome. Uh, and uh, and uh, something I certainly appreciate through the aperture of my own experience. You know, lots of things have not gone so well. So when I first started doing this work, you know, HIV, which were that, which at that time was a terminal illness, was um, the main concern for this population. Um, you know, people did overdose and people did die from overdoses, but it was much. Um, it was much lower, uh, much lower rates than, than what we've observed, observed over the last 10 years. So since starting this work, you know, what's happened? We've had this overdose death, um, overdose mortality crisis. We've had uh, a low-key HIV epidemic nationwide uh, that's driven mostly by people who inject drugs. We've had bacterial infections uh, become a nation, nationwide problem related to injection drug use. Infective endocarditis is a big problem now. Uh, Populations also become largely unhoused. So when I first started doing these studies back in the 90s, about a third of my participants would be unhoused. And in my current study, where we just completed data collection uh, this year, uh, 80% of folks in my study were, were unhoused. So there's been a real diminution of well-being uh, in the population, materially, socially, uh, and then also these additional threats to their health. Um, uh, and, you know, and I guess the take-home is that there's a lot more work we need to do uh, to address the sort of persistent challenges uh, that these populations face. We've really uh, tried to carefully examine the impact of being unhoused and unsheltered on people's health, uh, on this population of people who, who use drugs. Um, and so we've had a couple of papers uh, uh, that we developed both from the prior study and then the current study that are essentially demonstrating that um, sweeping encampments actually makes it harder for people to maintain well-being um, and is basically cruel um, and not helpful. And um, so uh, we've we've shown that there's an association between having to be relocated or moved or displaced and elevated risk uh, related to HIV um, and hepatitis C uh, and then also overdose. Uh, and that's driven in part both by your unsettling people's social and material conditions, which is you know, obviously very disruptive, not something that, you know, most of us experience on a routine basis. Uh, so we're less sensitive to the, to its impacts, but uh, it, it, they are profound. But also what happens in these uh, in these sweeps or encampment clearances is people get stuff thrown away. So in our study, you know, 70% have food or clothing thrown away. Uh, naloxone, which is a medication we use to o- reverse overdoses, about half of them report having that thrown away. Um, people who are HIV positive, who are taking HIV medications to stay well, those get disposed of. Um, so, you know, it's sort of the, the the sort of routine policy in many urban areas, you know, has a sort of devastating impact. So we have, you know, a paper, a paper 
on that that was published uh, a year or two ago. And then my doctoral student, Jesse Gold, or former doctoral student, student Dr. Jesse Goldshear, um, you know, just got a paper accepted, which is an ethnography on the impact of um, of the sweeps on people who use drugs. And he uses uh, an ontological security framework. And basically the, premises, uh, the premise of uh, ontological security is that people need material constancy, routine, privacy, and social support to obtain wellness, which is, you know, great faithfulability, right? Like we know that from our own lives. Um, and uh, what he's trying to show in that work is these sort of routine violations of people's security basically makes it harder for them uh, to take care of themselves. And then we, so that's, uh, and that paper just got accepted and then it will be out in social science and medicine in the, within the next week. Um, and then we had another paper come out in April where we collaborated with a physician and some mathematical modelers and took our underlying um, uh, model, uh, uh, um, uh, um, correlational model of the consequences of being displaced and then modeled uh, overdose deaths uh, and mortality uh, among unhoused people in uh, a couple of different cities. This was just published in JAMA in April and found that, you know, this sort of moving people around all the time greatly elevates their risk of death, uh, both by overdoses and other causes. Um, so that's one important thing. And then the main thing of the study was actually to look at whether cannabis legalization, uh, which had happened in Los Angeles and Colorado, uh, which is the two sites, study sites for the study, um, might be related with uh, changes in drug use patterns. And so the basic idea, um, it, that's well supported, both at a sort of biological basis and then also just in self-report and observational data, um, is that there's some, there's some evidence that suggests that people can use cannabis uh, instead of opiates. So they can use it to manage pain, they can use it to manage withdrawal symptoms, and they can basically substitute their cannabis for their opiates. Um, and so the opportunity of legalization in California and Colorado is sort of a chance to look at that relationship. Unfortunately, um, uh, at the same time that cannabis and um, was becoming legal, particularly in California, um, in both Colorado and California, fentanyl, uh, illicitly manufactured fentanyl, was introduced into the illicit drug market. Fentanyl is basically 50 times more potent than typical heroin. And so the impact of cannabis as a substitution is probably greatly diminished given the, the higher um, potency of, uh, of fentanyl. Although we, you know, we just finished data collection. So we'll look at that question and see if maybe, you know, something comes out. Um, but but uh, my suspicion is that the, the fentanyl has basically trumped um, our capacity to look at that relationship between cannabis and heroin. So the question is, you know, what do I do when I have these sort of, these important secular changes uh, in the environment? And, you know, I, I try to do a couple of things. So, you know, one is I try to take them into account, so collect data on them, uh, which is what we've sort of done by asking questions about people being displaced or relocated. Uh, and we lean into that. So we've we've been proactive uh, at looking at 
uh, at that that impact. And I've done that in pre prior studies as well. So I, I've definitely not been afraid to sort of change the operating assumptions of the of the research in relationship to things I know happening in the real world that have a meaningful impact on people. So I know it's a little unusual because, you know, we we're, we want to be in sort of hypothesis-driven science. But when you're doing research with folks, you know, who are essentially under assault by our social system, uh, it seems unethical to me uh, when I finally figure out that something's happening <laughs> to not try and uh, lean into it and figure out what are the consequences of it. Um, so that's one thing I do. And so we did that in my prior study and then in the current study because we knew that being unhoused and shelter had this impact. You know, we've acted, asked those questions proactively or prospectively in the study. And so we will have better data when we get around to looking at it because we follow the people over time. So that's one thing that I do. Um, and then the other is I try to share the findings with policymakers and my colleagues um, and uh, both formally and informally so that folks are aware of the potential negative consequence of these sort of policies on, on populations that we all care about, right? Um, you, know, I, you know, I don't think any of us are happy to see folks being unsheltered and unhoused. We're not happy to see people not getting access to medications for opiate use disorder. We're not happy to, to learn that naloxone might be getting thrown away by sanitation workers. So, you know, I try to interact with politicians, policymakers, and then also communities that are impacted by this. So I work closely with a couple of community-based organizations that also have people of lived experience involved in them. Um, and, you know, I basically, um, you know, do community talks and, and, uh, and interact as widely as I can with folks, um, you know, to share a couple of basic points that I've learned or distill, you know, things I've distilled through my 30 plus year career, you know, and one of them, you know, there are a couple that I think are worth highlighting here, which is that the truth is, is while we all have different individual challenges, and they're, you know, we have individual differences. You know, sometimes people have depression. Sometimes people have serious psychiatric disorders. You know, and there's nothing we can do about those differences. But it's important to realize that all of those differences are worse when people have fewer resources. And so sort of the, the it's important to realize that there are ways that we can help people, even who have, you know, profound individual differences that make, can make daily life challenging. Um, and the truth is, there are tons of people who find themselves in my study, right, who are using, chronically using methamphetamines or fentanyl or heroin or cocaine. Um, and they can be helped uh, by getting them resources, right? Um, and, and, you know, I think it's a little counterintuitive because people do think of folks who have substance use disorders kind of out of control. Uh, but I would say, it, it, I would say they're not out of control, right? It's not easy uh, to use heroin every day. The reason why people do it is because they're physically dependent on it. And if they don't do it, they're not able to function, right? The same thing is true for fentanyl. The same thing is true for prescription opiates. So they're, they're in a sort of existential struggle every day to make sure that they're well enough to function. Um, that does not make them irrational. 
And, the, you know, there's growing evidence, uh, both in some other work that I've done with the LEAD initiative in L.A., but even uh, universal basic income experiments that are going on all over the country, that, like, if you just give people money, they'll actually use their money in a way that helps them be secure, right? That helps them become housed. That helps them reconnect to family and friends. That allows them to eat regularly. Uh, that makes them free of violence and insecurity. Um, and so that's the other big, another big point that I make, which is the problems can be solved and they just need, they just need resources. And the truth is the resources it would cost to, to, to help people are often much less than what we spend on these kinds of problems in the status quo, right? Because we spend money on really expensive things like arresting people and maintaining jails. And having, you know, this robust sanitation, art, you know, group that has to throw people's stuff away and then take it to dumps. And like all of that costs millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. And if some of that money were redirected to just like saying, hey, you know, here's a couple of grand a month. Show me what you can do. Right. That, you know, we, we have I have good belief in both my own experience and the existing literature to suggest that, yeah, people would actually end up housed and sheltered and they would be living in accommodations that would make, uh, you know, remove the, you know, remove the, the public nuisance associated with being unhoused uh, and the litter that's associated with this. And at the same time, put them in a position to really uh, um, attain some well-being and, and uh, act and preserve their human dignity. Um, so, and I think that's a really important message. I mean, people, you know, it, it's frustrating to me because people are always like, well, you know, if you do this intervention, what does it cost? It's like what we do now is crazy expensive, crazy expensive. You know, I mean, it costs forty, fifty thousand dollars to put someone in state prison for a year. I mean, if you, literally, if you just took that money and, and gave it to a case manager and asked them to work with that person, you know, you would resolve 90% of their problems, right? And you would have a person who'd be in a position to productively contribute, not only to the economy, but to, you know, social order, family stability, um, uh, uh, and improve themselves individually. So, I, I mean, we, 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 we've taken the most expensive approach that's the least effective, and there are alternatives at work. And, uh, and so that's, that's what I'd like to argue for. So the combination of increased homelessness, uh, you know, for the last couple of years, and then over the last couple of decades, the impact of the prescription opiate um, crisis, for one of a better term, um, you know, has certainly broadened the conversation. And, you know, an important reason why the harm reduction intervention that I spoke, the interventions that I spoke about earlier have been federally adopted is because of the consequence of overdose death, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the you know, what's the cliche, never let a, a catastrophe go, you know, uh, get, get wasted or something like that. You know, there's a, this idea that when there's a crisis, there's also an opportunity. So, you know, and I think that opportunity has resulted in some better policy, for sure. Um, you know, in terms of the general societal debate around how do we deal with people who are unhoused, 
how do we help them? How do we address that problem? Or how do we deal with the challenges of substance substance use disorder? You know, I think it's, you know, probably two steps forward, one step back. So, you know, there's still a ton of stigma against people who use drugs. Um, there are still um, policies that disadvantage that group, uh, in my mind, with little or no good reason. Um, but the crisis has created opportunities for us to loosen regulations around prescribing or buprenorphine or suboxone. Um, it has resulted somewhat in loosening of methadone, although there's a there's an active movement, uh, the liberate methadone movement, uh, to try and further deregulate that highly effective and popular uh, medication uh, for opiate use disorder. Um, you know, I think as it relates to people who are unhoused, I mean, we have better data now about who those folks are. Um, and so that's a little bit of a corrective to the public debate. But I, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm sorry to say that I think, um, you know, many people in our country prefer simplistic answers to complex questions and seldom do those simplistic answers work. And, you know, we see that with the homeless encampment sweeps. So there's lots of political, you know, I mean, that's the mainstream position is that we need to sweep these encampments. Um, and, you know, the truth is it just makes life worse for, worse for people. Now, you know, we, the mayor of Los Angeles, Karen Bass, you know, and this is not without controversial controversy, but, you know, she's trying this in safe home approach where they identify the housing ahead of time. And get, you know, get as many people in an encampment to agree to it and then facilitate their dignified moving into that housing before the sweep. So that's an improvement uh, over the current policy, but the current, you know, the previous policies of just sweeping encampments. Um, but that still happens in Los Angeles without the guarantee of housing. Um, and, you know, I think it's it's complicated. The, the way I like to put it is, you know, my wife and I have a home. We've been in that home for, you know, uh, 24 years, 25 years. Uh, it's a home where we can invite people into. We can we can make people not able to come in. We can come and go as we please. We can do whatever we want in that housing. So it's our home, right? And oftentimes the offer of housing that we give to people who are currently uh, unhoused aren't homes. So they're not situations where they can move in with their loved ones or they can bring their pets with them or it's in the neighborhood where they have friends and family or feel comfortable and safe or known. Uh, and so all of these things, these complicators are impediments to getting people housed, but they're also impediments to keeping people housed. So that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is that we have to also look at the other dynamics in our housing market. You know, unfortunately, in the United States, really beginning in the 80s with Reagan, we really stopped building public housing. So we stopped, you know, in the ways that we subsidize um, low-income housing are really inefficient, particularly in places like Los Angeles or San Diego or Colorado, where there are, you know, white-hot real estate markets. You know, so even when you have these subsidies, Every day that you're not building a house, you're losing housing, right? 
Um, and unless we, you know, expand writ control and make it really hard to evict people, and then also marry that with building additional housing that's just dedicated for low-income people, whether it's scatter side or, you know, developments. I, truth is, I don't really care. I just know we need it, right? And you know, and I, the way I, the reason I know we need it is because I I know people like folks with names and, you know, histories who have gotten sectioned housing vouchers and not been able to find a place to live, right? So the, our current market approach to housing low-income people is failing. And so we've got to look at the structural part of that as well. So my advice to the next generation uh, of scientists, well, maybe I'll start and finish with the thing that I think has been most important about my own career which is I've learned to listen. You know, there's a great opportunity in science because all science, all science begins with the proposition that I don't know. And so what's distinguished my career, maybe from some of my colleagues, is, is that so in thinking about how do I come to know, you know, I've tried to listen to people who have the problems as well as what we've learned from other scientists who've been studying this area. But that the key part is listening to the people who have the problem. Because folks often have very deep insights into the things that are going on with them. Um, you know, they might not always understand the causality, but you know what? Causality, we, who, no one does, right? I mean, that's why we have these research studies. You know, ca causality is elusive and difficult to establish. Um, but listening to people with the problems, I think, is the key. And that when you formulate research agendas that come from the population with the challenges, you're more likely to land on things that are helpful to them and likely to improve society. Preventive Pros, the podcast, is produced by the Department of Population and Public Health Sciences at Keck School of Medicine of USC. To learn more about any of our episodes, or to subscribe to our monthly Preventive Dose newsletter featuring the latest in public health research and news, visit pphs.usc.edu forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening.